You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was super excited to have Brad Stolberg on the podcast this week. I think the biggest aha moment, it's this idea of rugged, flexible. We have to be rugged and enduring at the same time we have to be flexible. So holding those two concepts together as a both and is really important for success. So many things that we think of as extreme opposites are actually best for us, contribute to performance in the broad sense of the world when we're able to hold them together. This week, I'm speaking with best-selling author, speaker, and coach Brad Stolberg about the only thing constant in life, change. Brad researches well-being, human potential, and sustainable performance, and his new book, Master of Change, is a masterclass on how to be resilient in the face of an ever-changing world. His past books include Peak Performance, The Practice of Groundedness, The Passion Paradox, and his work has appeared in publications like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine. If that weren't enough, he holds multiple degrees from the University of Michigan, where he also serves as an adjunct faculty member. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So, Brad, your book, Peak Performance, it was all about like max achievement, and I loved it. And in Master of Change, it seems to be rooted in the w- ancient wisdom traditions and something I've been fascinated for a long time. And so I'm just curious, how has your research and thinking on human performance changed over the years? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that I have broadened my definition of performance, or at least how I think about it. When I first started working at the intersection of health, well-being, and, and excellence, I thought of performance as feeling good and doing good. And that is definitely still, to me, the, the underlying foundation of performance. But now it's feeling good and doing good on the things that matter to you most. Because I think what has happened in the world of performance is people have lost sight of that second half of the sentence and just focused on the first. So when peak performance first came out, that was late 2016, early 2017, and Performance was somewhat new to the lexicon. Performance science wasn't a well-recognized field. And a big part of the work that I did in in that book with my co-author, Steve Magnus, was really explore the importance of rest and stress plus rest equals growth. And this was thinking that is age old in the athletic world, but was kind of new in the business world. And then after about three to four years, interest in the topic really took off. And Unfortunately, what that meant is a deluge of people that started using performance essentially as a marketing tool. And we entered this phase of what I call blind optimization or efficiency at all cost or bro science. And um, I think my more recent work has been trying to reclaim the word performance as not just something that you do to post about in social media or to get a raise at work, but something that really imbues life with meaning. Yeah, and I love that because what I have witnessed about how you've evolved from my perspective is being more purpose-driven or or perhaps teaching us to be more purpose-driven. And by purpose-driven, I think of having more meaning in life. Yeah, that's right. 
I think that currently, if you were to ask me the key to quote unquote performance and also the key to fulfilled life, I would say that it really starts with knowing your core values or the attributes and qualities that matter to you most, and then doing what you can to live in alignment with those values. I agree with you, right? But we don't get any training on this in high school, college. How many people get taught about the importance of defining a set of values that mean most to you that you can practice? Do you think we're missing out on that training in life? I I think that it's two things. I think that, yes, it would be nice if it were more purposeful and deliberate in education. I also think that it's easy to write this stuff off as woo-woo when you're young, when you're in high school, when you're in even undergraduate school, perhaps. And I think part of maturing into adulthood is realizing that, hey, you know, some of the woo-woo stuff is just woo-woo, but some of it, there's a there there. And there's a reason that perennial wisdom traditions come back to these themes, even if they point at them from different angles. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to figure out what led you to Master of Change, your most recent book. And I wanted to think about it first through this lens. So people keep talking about the rate of change and how astonishingly fast it is. And we spend a lot of time studying durable leadership skills. And we see leadership principles from 2000 years ago that are as vital today as ever. And yet at the same time, we see Gen AI skills, they're all the rage today. They didn't exist 13 months ago. And so there's this, on the one hand, astonishingly fast change. On the other hand, there are constants. And so I'm wondering, how how are you thinking about the rate of change today and what led you to write Master of Change? I think that the rate of change today is accelerating and intensifying, perhaps like never before. If you look across history, There have been periods of massive inflection points. A few examples are the wheel, the invention of fire, and the printing press. And I think what's happening now is really just Moore's law manifesting exponentially, right? The rate of technological development is having an impact not just on one area of our life, but on so many at the same time from medicine to education to running a business. I think the original theory about Moore's Law was, um, what is it, 2x, like every year, chip size and power grows, and that is new. So I think that that's one thing that's happening. I think another thing is that our perception of change and disorder is also accelerating. And that is because the economy has really shifted from one that makes goods to produces knowledge to now, in many ways, traffics and attention. If you think about social media or really so much of the internet, it's monetized based on someone's eyeballs and someone's attention. So I think there's two things that are happening. I think, number one, the pace of change is actually accelerating. And I think, number two, our perception of change is greater than it's ever been because it's more interface. Yeah, so if I'm early in my career right now and I'm listening to that, it's a pretty scary assessment. So. Talk to me about how you would advise someone, let's say early in their career, just getting started. What is your advice for how people should learn how to embrace change and not fight it? Yeah, so this is really the essence of what led to the last couple of years of my research and reporting. And I think first and foremost is a mindset shift that change is not something that happens to you. 
but change is that something that you are in an ongoing conversation with. I think that so much of our resistance to change just comes from our framing. We think of it as a singular event that, again, that happens to us. And when something happens to you, what do you do? You put your hands up and you lean back. You get into a defensive posture. Whereas a more accurate view of change is that, one, it's not a singular event. It's the nature of reality. Everything is changing always. And two, you get to engage with that. You get to dance with change. Well, then instead of being in a defensive posture, you actually pay more attention and you lean in and you get really curious and you work with it. So first and foremost is just this mindset shift that change isn't bad, change isn't good, change is neutral. It is also the first law of physics, entropy, things move towards chaos, things change. Every single wisdom tradition, Judeo-Christianity, Buddhism, Taoism, they all reckon with impermanence. And then the second thing I would say, getting a little bit more concrete to your question, is, is really the, the central construct that emerged in, in the research and reporting for the book, which is this term rugged flexibility. Most people hear this and they think these two words are opposites. To be rugged is to be tough, to be durable, to be gritty, to be hardened. And to be flexible is to be soft, to be supple, to bend easily without breaking, to be adaptable. And what I found across research in multiple domains, as well as in hundreds of interviews with individuals and organizations that have weathered change and grown from change, is that they're not rugged or flexible, they're rugged and flexible. So they hold both of these competing ideas at the same time. So how do you put that into practice? The ruggedness, these are the things that don't change. These are those management principles that are 2,000 years old. The flexibility is being able to creatively apply those things to new environments and to think about using them in new ways and to be highly adaptable on everything other than those central principles. So it's almost like asking yourself, what is core to who you are? What is core to how you lead? What is core to the company that you're running? And then what is merely patterns or habits that are actually able to change and might benefit from changing? And I think that the ruggedness is the source of stability that really provides the ground that we stand on during change and then empowers us to go be flexible and to go be in conversation with change on everything else. Yeah, and talk about non-dual thinking. And specifically, you say in the book that non-dual thinking is a key towards developing wisdom. And I'd love to hear more about what you mean by that. Right. So let's start with dual thinking, which is this or that. And it is very much a linchpin of Western thought. And for good reason, it really underlies so much of the scientific method. You have a hypothesis and you try to either prove it or disprove it. And it's very this or that. And this or that thinking has allowed us to develop incredible technologies that have made life more enjoyable and made life longer. So there's nothing wrong with this or that thinking. However, for many big, meaty, complex issues of life, the answer is rarely this or that, but some variety of this and that. So ruggedness and flexibility to navigate change is a prime example of non-dual thinking. Other examples, not self-discipline or self-compassion, self-discipline and self-compassion. Not solitude or community, solitude and community. So many things that we think of as extreme opposites are actually best for us 
contribute to performance in the broad sense of the world when we're able to hold them together. So one way to think of this is generally we tend to fall closer to one extreme. So you tend to either be like a little more rugged or a little more flexible, or you tend to be really self-disciplined, or maybe you, you, you err on the side of self-compassion. And a lot of this is just our innate temperament. And then some of it is learned behavior. And the goal isn't to be right in the middle of both extremes. The goal is to make sure that you always look over your shoulder and look the other way. So if you're someone that is super flexible, you want to make sure that you're looking over your shoulder and you're saying, hey, do I have my sources of ruggedness? Do I know what those are? If you're someone who's super structured and you feel really rugged, you want to look in the other direction and say, hey, what can I do to be a little bit more flexible? And I think that the second thing and the perennial example of non-dual thinking um, that runs through the book and that very much relates to change is acceptance and problem solving. So for every big change, we are going to need to accept parts of it and be able to also problem solve parts of it. Because some changes, there's not much that we can do, and we really just need to practice acceptance. Whereas other changes, there's so much that we can do and we need to problem solve. And just having this framework, I think, is so helpful, which is, okay, this thing just happened to me. Where ought I be on a continuum of radical acceptance, do nothing about it? versus radical problem solving, try to control and fix. And just asking yourself that question is so powerful. So uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how people use that to navigate change, the idea of updating your expectations to match reality. In psychology, there's a shorthand equation, which is that your mood at any given point of time is a function of your reality minus your expectations. So if your expectations are better than your reality, you tend not to feel so great. If your reality is in alignment with your expectations, you tend to feel good. You tend to meet the moment. And I want to be really clear. This isn't about setting low expectations for yourself, for your internal process. This is about setting accurate expectations for what's happening in the world around you. So let me give an example that certainly everyone in Europe and America experienced, which is the summer of 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic had been around for nearly a year and a half at that point, and caseloads very precipitously declined. And we got to August, and caseloads continued to stay at essentially zero. And many people, myself included, said, all right, we're on the other side of this thing. And then what happened in November? The Delta variant. And it felt like such a gut punch. It felt terrible. And what's fascinating, and I did a lot of reporting on this for the book, many people, when the Delta variant came, they felt worse than they did at the start of the pandemic, even though objectively we were in a much better position. We had vaccination, we had therapeutics, we had learned more about transmissibility. But the reason that it felt so bad is because our expectation was that this was over. It's like running a marathon and we saw the finish line. We thought we were at mile 25 and then we got picked up and put back to mile five. And what ended up happening is individuals and organizations that didn't quickly update their expectation to match reality, they suffered more than they needed to. Whereas those that were able to very quickly say, all right, this sucks, but this is what's happening right now. Here's what I'm going to need to change as a result. They were able to take skillful and productive action. 
Because if you're trying to act on a fantasy, then it doesn't matter how skillful your actions are. It's not going to get you where you want to go. So you've got to ground yourself in reality. And in many ways, that's a very stark example, but all change is simply our expectations not being met. What we thought would happen didn't happen, or we couldn't predict it. So it's so key to working with change to update our expectations to match our reality. Yeah, I think that's an important first step in change is setting those expectations. And also you have the quote about uh, control. I think it's Epictetus. That's right, the dichotomy of control. So there are always going to be things in life that we can control, and there's always going to be things in life that we can't. And to the extent possible, we ought to focus on what we can and try not to worry about and accept what we can't. So this is in Stoic thought. In Buddhism, it's the parable of the second arrow. The first arrow is a painful circumstance or event that you can't control. But the second arrow is if you react to that, and it's often the second arrow that hurts worse. And of course, it's the serenity prayer in Christianity, which is God grant me the serenity to accept that which I can't control and essentially problem solve that which I can. So it gets back to this dichotomy between problem solving and in acceptance. And then I also think it's important that we expect life to be hard. This gets into another really important non-dual concept in the book, which is tragic optimism. And tragic optimism was coined by Viktor Frankl, who, a Holocaust survivor, psychoanalyst, most well-known for his work, Man's Search for Meaning, wrote this short essay called The Case for Tragic Optimism that is much lesser known than his other work. And in it, he essentially said, enough with the toxic positivity in being a Pollyanna. There are certain parts of life that are straight up tragic. And Frankel said, let's not sugarcoat this. Let's not resist it. Let's just acknowledge that there is a lot that is tragic about being a human. And at the same time, let's cultivate optimism and hope nonetheless. And I just think that that is so important. Like, what a mindset shift. What a relief for me to not need to just be optimistic and happy all the time, but also to not give yourself permission to wallow in nihilism or despair. But to really say, like, the work of being a mature adult is to be somewhere on that spectrum and to realize that both things can be true at once because life is full of tragedy and it's full of beautiful things and wonder. And I think that if the expectation is just that things are going to go your way or things are always going to be stable, well, again, happiness equals expectations versus reality. Like there's going to be a big gap. But I think tragic optimism as a mindset helps close that gap. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. We have a really popular course called Leading Breakthrough Change. It's taught by Dave Patrick, and he was the CEO of Charles Schwab, and he's a Wharton professor. And it's kind of the opposite of your book. I see your book as teach me how to lead my life through change. And Dave's course is about leading an organization through change. 
And one of the things he talks about, and it's it's the corollary in your book is perfect, but he basically says, look, an organization is set up for repeatability and scale, like the opposite of change. They're perfectly set to never change. And as a result, they become rigid and homeostasis sets in. And you have a different view, a more uh, you know, updated modern take on this. So I'd, I'd love to give us that grounding on homeostasis. Homeostasis is about 500 years old. It dates back to the beginning of empirical science. And it is a model that describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, order. It inherently says that change is bad, disorder is bad, and you want to do everything you can to get back to order when you're faced with change. And that a good, thriving, healthy living system is all about staying at order, right? Resisting change. However, within the last decade or two, the scientific community has stepped back and said, actually, homeostasis is a model for change is not very accurate. When you look at individuals and organizations that really thrive through change and stay along for a long period of time that really have good staying power, what you find is that they navigate change in a slightly different cycle. And they go from order to disorder to reorder. So yes, they crave stability, but that stability is a moving target. It's always somewhere new. And I think that it's really a subtle but profound shift which is that if you view change as bad, then you will always try to get back to order. But if you view change as a vehicle for growth, while accepting that stability is important, you start to update to want to get to reorder. And I think that the etymology of these words tells the whole story so elegantly. So homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. So it argues that you achieve stability by staying the same. Allostasis comes from the Latin root allo, which means change. So allostasis says that you achieve stability through change. And it has this beautiful double meaning that we can be stable through change. And the way to be stable through change is by changing, at least to some extent. So this is really the flexibility part of rugged flexibility. And then, of course, the rugged part Those are those central features. Those are those parts of order that you're going to take with you to the new reorder. Granted, you might apply them a little bit differently. Yeah, so back in the late 80s, Tom Peters wrote a book, Thriving on Chaos. And that's another thing that gets me thinking about your book. And he was looking at management and and he was looking backwards. This is in 1987. He's like, if I look at the practice of management over the last 15 years, we're doomed in the future because... We need managers have to embrace flexibility and love change and that they could indeed they could use chaos as a source of market advantage. And and Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote about that in more detail with anti-fragile. And you did a a beautiful job of laying that in with non-dual thinking as a way to sort of make sense of rugged and flexible. And I wonder if you could talk about your version of thriving on chaos through the lens of anti-fragile. Yeah, that's right. I really like Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, and I certainly don't want to poke the bear, the bear being Taleb. (laughs) Um, However, I'd say that where I disagree, and disagree is too strong of a word, but maybe where I see a little bit differently than Taleb is I think that Taleb underrates 
the true importance of stability. And I think intellectually, it's very easy to say, just make yourself anti-fragile, just go with change wherever it takes you. But in practice, in the real world, we need some sense of rudder, we need some kind of stability. So that's why a big part of this book isn't just on the anti-fragility or the flexibility, but it's also on really defining your central features. And this isn't just my take on this, right? Because how I got to this is I zoomed way out and I said, all right, what is the biggest, longest standing change in the history of the world that we're aware of that we can observe? And the answer is evolution, how we got here today. So then I stepped back and I said, all right, if I'm going to take an evolutionary frame to this, I want to know what about certain species that have been around for a, a long time? Like, what do they have in common? And what I found is this really interesting combination of two things. The first is what are called central features. So these are attributes and characteristics of species where if they changed, the species would no longer be what it is. They would become unrecognizable. The second is that they were extremely adaptable on everything else. So how do you thrive and persist throughout millennia of change at a species level? Is you have central features, sources of ruggedness, the hills that you are going to die on, and then you are highly flexible across the board on everything else. And that is what determines how long a species survives. And I think that you can really overlay that on a company or even on an individual in your own way of thinking about your identity, is you want to have certain things, your DNA, your core values that really make you who you are, that are your stability, that you are going to hold on to, and then ask yourself, how can I be so flexible on everything else? And how might my core values change over time? But I just I, I struggle with this notion that you can just jump into chaos without a rudder. And, and I'm being a little extreme. I know that Peter's Nortelab argues that, but I think the framing of like thrive in chaos often overlooks the importance of having a solid foundation of stability that then allows you to thrive in chaos. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And you're always going back to kind of this non-dualist view of the world, which is that it, you have to have both. I want to maybe get a couple of tips for our listeners and, and one that I, I'd love to hear some tips on how do we cultivate a, a more complex sense of self mind, body, family, the identities that we hold and, and be more fluid. This is, I think, one of, if not the most interesting parts of the book. And I think particularly for people that are very ambitious and maybe came into my work because they heard the word performance and are perhaps early in their career, I think this is just so important. So the metaphor that I like to use for identity is a house. And if you have only one room in your house and that room floods or catches fire, it is going to be a very disorienting experience. You'll have to move out of your house. You'll have nowhere to go. Whereas if you have multiple rooms in your house, if one of them floods or catches fire, you can go seek refuge in the other rooms while you work out the flood or put out the fire. And the same is true with our identities. If we only have one room in our identity house, whether that room is Olympic athlete or manager or employee or writer or parent, well, eventually there's going to be change in that one room. 
And if we don't have other rooms we can go to for stability, it is a lot harder to navigate than if we do. So I think such a key to having an identity that can withstand change is to have multiple rooms in your identity house. And I want to be really clear. It is okay to have seasons of your life where you spend a lot of time in one room. There might be a season of your life where you are all in on the get promoted at work room or all in on the parenting room or all in on the relationship room or all in on the run a marathon room. That's fine so long as you don't leave the other rooms completely behind, so long as you don't let them get moldy. So the way that I like to think about it is you can be all in on something, but you can't be all in all the time. Because then what happens is if you are just in one room and then that one room shifts, you've got nowhere else to go. So I'd really encourage listeners to think about what are the big rooms in your identity house? What do you want to prioritize? Where do you want to spend the most time? And how can you make sure that you never let the important rooms get moldy? Yes, I like how you advise people to make sure that you have enough of those so that when one falls weak, the other ones help pick you up. But you have another concept too about maybe you don't have to be productive all the time. And sometimes you need to find a way to be at peace with yourself and and prioritize a meaningful life. Yeah, I think that we ought to vacillate between reflection and production. And again, no one's ever going to be right in the middle. And there are going to be seasons of life where you're in production mode and seasons of life where you're in reflection mode. And I think it's just important to never leave either of those behind. So as you said, it's just another one of these examples of non-dual thinking. Excellent. So final concept I'd like to get to is the concept of your four Ps. There's a lot of good research on developing and cultivating emotional intelligence. And in the emotional intelligence world, we have to teach people to sort of stop and think before they react. And I think you have a really nice model for thinking about this that I think helps increase emotional intelligence that'll help our listeners think about the difference between reacting and responding. Can you tell us what those two things are, how we should think about them and what we should do? All right. So let's start with reacting versus responding. So anytime there's some sort of change or event, we're faced with either a reaction or a response. A reaction is immediate. It is rash. It's instinctive. It literally means to meet one action with another. A response, however, is slow, deliberate, thoughtful, planful, There's a lot of space between stimulus and response when we respond, not react. And many philosophers have eloquently and I believe accurately stated that our agency, our humanity lies in our freedom to choose what to do with events. And that freedom to choose is only as strong as the space between stimulus and response. If we have no space, if we just react, we've lost our humanity right? It's any other animal can just instinctively react. So truly what uniquely makes us human, not just metaphorically, is that we can create space to then choose what to do as a result of a stimulus, as a result of an event. For really highly charged, challenging situations, that space, the natural inclination is for it to collapse, for us just to go into reactionary mode. Yet it's so important to pull back and to create space so that we can respond. To get out of conceptual world for a sec, this is the email that you wish that you didn't send, 
or if you're a parent, this is when you snap on your kid when they're taking too long to go out the door to school. And the minute you do it, you start to feel terrible. Those are reactions, right? What happens, the space disappears and you just do the thing and then you feel bad as a result. So the question is, how do you create space? And every book like this has to have at least one framework. So this is the one framework in, in Master of Change. And it's the two Ps versus the four Ps. So reacting, two Ps. You panic and then you pummel ahead. Responding, four Ps. You pause, take a couple of deep breaths. You process. Research shows that just naming your emotions, naming what you're feeling, helps create space between you and the situation. This could be, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling rushed. I'm feeling restless. I'm feeling tense feeling a pit in my stomach or tightness in my chest. Just the act of labeling your emotions creates some space. Then plan. This gets back to that dichotomy of control. Now that you've paused, you've created the space, you can say, all right, what about this situation can I control? And what can't I control? And then what resources and capabilities do I have that I can bring to bear on the parts that I can? And then only then do you proceed. And what I like about this framework is that the framework very much mirrors what it's trying to accomplish, right? Panic and pummel ahead is very short. It's quick. You just do. You react, pause, process, plan, proceed. It's elongated. It creates that space. It's a beautiful framework. And I think as humans, we struggle with that because you get into a tough situation, the hair on the back of your neck goes up and you say the thing you regret. So I really love the framework. As we wrap up here, Brad, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? Ooh, this is such a good question because there's so many answers I could offer. What I am most curious about now is how we experience time and what causes time to feel blurred or like it's slowed down or what causes time to feel like it's sped up because time itself is very objective. Every second is the same, yet the way that we experience it often feels very different. I address this a little bit in the book and I'm continuing to think about it because I think the repercussions for how we live our life are just absolutely enormous. And in particular, the loss of routine and ritual in our lives and how routine and ritual they really help bind time and give time meaning and make things that otherwise might seem really blurry concrete in how for a whole number of factors, starting with electricity that allowed us to get away from morning and night based on darkness and light, all the way up to cell phones and pagers and laptops and now smartphones and work from home in the decline of um, organized religion, like all of these sources of natural routine and ritual have kind of taken a backseat and receded. And I'm really curious about whether or not that, well, I know it has, but how that has changed how we perceive time. Yep, I like where you're going. So I'll look forward to seeing where you go next with the concept of time. Yeah, thank you. All right, Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a real pleasure getting to spend today with you and have this conversation. So thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Brad Stolberg for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, 
a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced in partnership with Pod People. Our original theme is by Soundboard.